0: It's great to be together again this evening, isn't it? To appreciate the opportunity that's ours to be able to not only sing praises unto God, but of course, to appreciate an opportunity to study a section of the Word of God and to engage in the other things that God has said please Him in worship. As we come together this evening and do that, we've arrived at a point in the service in which we'll reflect for the next few moments on a portion of the Word of God. As we do that... We'll, of course, be using Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, that which was read just a moment ago. May I suggest, as we begin that consideration, though, that the title of the lesson certainly brings before us this. This is a second installment in a series of lessons that follow from that debate, or at least that public discussion that was held back at the latter part of the month of May. This opening slide, or at least this next slide, perhaps recalls to your mind and mind some of the features or attributes. It was, of course, on a Friday and Saturday evening when Jack Honeycutt, as well as Michael Bronner, had a public discussion that touched not only baptism, but a number of other features that were raised also during that particular point of, of conversation. And last month, in the month of July, we looked at a, one lesson that asked us to reflect on one of the false matters that Mr. Bronner presented during that during that discussion, and tonight we come to another. During the course of that, there were a number of things that were stated, and we're going to look tonight at the steps of conversion, but we're not going to look at it from perhaps what is so familiar, but rather giving some thought to explicitly what it was that was said during that discussion on this particular slide. Could you and I maybe appreciate that we're going to use, of course, 2 Timothy 3.16 to motivate us by saying all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. With the thought then that all Scripture is inspired of God, that's what it means to say that it's inspired, that it leads us to utilize it and strive to rightly divide it and handle it correctly. And as we do that, Let's, in fact, present before us immediately the thought of what was said during that discussion. Now, at the top of this slide, I would ask that you be very careful as you notice. I'm not saying that this is the biblically correct thing, but this is what was asserted during that discussion. As the plan of salvation was being described, Mr. Bronner took the point of very emphatically And in fact, very overwhelmingly with strength, he asserted that the plan of salvation consists of the following in order. He asserted that a person must hear, but that must be followed by historical faith. And after that, again, in order, there is godly sorrow. And after that, chronologically following, is repentance. Following that is saving faith. And after that is baptism. And finally, there's living faith. As he described that and as he presented those, he in fact involved a fair amount of his discussion time defending that. I would ask that you notice it very carefully. We're going to study this evening, does that correspond to the truth of the Word of God? And if so, in what way should we understand it? But if not, we certainly would want to make sure we appreciate what's incorrect about it. Could I ask you to notice almost immediately? Mr. Bronner, in fact, you'll notice three different faiths are mentioned in that list. There's historical faith, there's saving faith, there's living faith, all three of them. And he made the point more than once of emphasizing that they are distinct, they're distinguishable, and they're each one unique. With that in mind, some of the verses that he used, and we will revisit these later in our lesson tonight, but the verses that he attempted to use to defend these multiple faiths. Acts 10, verse 43, and the circumstances surrounding the conversion of Cornelius. In Acts twenty six twenty seven, 27, the statement that Paul made to Agrippa. Hebrews 11, verse 6, the circumstance there about the necessity of faith in order to please God. As he used them, identifying that statement I made at the top, he said that's the plan of salvation. Nobody will be saved apart from following them in order. You'll notice at this point, may I say another thing that he in fact emphasized in that presentation. He said there are no less than two baptisms that are required and active now, at least two. We're going to ask tonight in our discussion as to whether or not that too is consistent with the Word of God. As you proceed forward on that slide, he emphasized that repentance precedes faith. In other words, a person must repent before he can have a proper faith. We're going to ask also in due course this evening about that as well. Needless to say, as we come to the bottom of the slide, let's make an initial disclaimer. Mr. Bronner is incorrect about these assertions, all three of them. That is not the biblical plan of salvation. That is not the steps of conversion. Furthermore, there are not many faiths and there are not many baptisms today. And furthermore, as you appreciate them, the order is entirely mixed up. Baptism does not precede faith. I say all of that to ask us to embed in our heart the truth of God's Word on subjects like this one, so that when we discuss with others or at least have opportunity to show them that which God requires for salvation that we'd be prepared and ready to present it as we're going to learn about it, of course, tonight. At this point, let's proceed to the next slide. You probably can already imagine that one of the main reasons why in the history of the Baptist belief that this particular order is the way it is for them is because they want a system such that baptism is not necessary to be saved. And therefore, saving faith occurs long before baptism, at least in their scheme. And furthermore, repentance occurs after faith because they require a person to be saved at the point of faith and not after it. Now, we know the Bible just doesn't teach that. And no wonder there's such a concocted scheme for the conversion process. But let's let's sort through it and let's try to unscramble it and do it with reason and use the Word of God to do it. May I suggest numbers alone speaks volumes in terms of this discussion. The sheer consideration of numbers. Initially, may I ask, how many faiths are there Mr. Bronner said there's three. Historical faith, saving faith, living faith. Is he right about this? And furthermore, are there scriptures that allowed us to appreciate this? May I say to you that each one of us I know will very quickly put our confidence and our assurance and our faith in the inspired apostle Paul rather than in the assertions and presentations of humankind Mr. Bronner said three faiths. The inspired Apostle Paul said there is one faith. May we never lose sight of the uniqueness and the specificity and the definiteness of the fact that there is one faith. That means there's not even two. There is but one. This distinction, this consideration of saving versus historical versus living, where do you find those phrases anywhere in the Bible? I looked, I couldn't find one single occurrence anywhere of the phrase historical faith. Not one occurrence anywhere of the phrase living faith. Not one occurrence anywhere of the phrase saving faith. At this point, these numbers again lead us immediately to call into question this plan of salvation as it was so emphatically presented during that discussion. But may I say, this text from the Apostle Paul isn't the only one. I have listed a whole host of others, and I'd like you to at least consider them very briefly with me one at a time. We'll not need to spend a great deal of time on any one of them because the point will be very clear very quickly. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the phrase as it's given there reads like this, And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Could I ask you to notice it says that a great company, the priests, were obedient to the faith. Given that the Holy Spirit has referred to it as the faith, how many of them are there? May I already invite you to notice that word in Greek is singular. And the definite article even emphasizes furthermore the fact that there is a uniqueness attached to the existence of that faith. There is but one. Those priests knew nothing about multiplicity of faiths. There was but one of them. Furthermore, in Acts 14, verse 22, on the first missionary journey, as Paul was in fact laboring in Asia Minor in the proclamation of truth, those brethren were confirmed and exhorted in light of the faith. How many faiths, Paul? How many the Holy Spirit? And we're told one more time using a singular word in Greek, the appreciation that there is but one faith. As Paul preached then throughout Asia Minor... Sharing with such power and emphasis the truth of God, he preached one faith. What about the next one? In Romans 1, verse 5, near the beginning of that Roman letter, Paul, with great directness, referred to the obedience of the faith. The church in Rome, as well as other congregations, and yea, Christianity, then and now, is such that there is this obedience that touches what? The faith. One more time it's singular in Greek. By this point we've already begun to see a pattern. Be it in Acts six, Acts 14, Romans chapter one. What about the next one? Galatians 123. On this occasion, this was from the statement of Paul himself, after his conversion, there were those who challenged him, and they made statements like this He now preaches the faith which he once destroyed how many faiths the statements they made in description of this man paul and his conversion to the truth and his preaching of it had to do with the faith one more time singular beyond that in colossians 2 verse 7 to the colossian brethren they too of course as paul addressed them they were admonished to be rooted and grounded in the faith singular titus 1 verse 13 as Paul addressed Titus. Titus, of course, had been left to preach on the island of Crete. And as he was on that particular place, Crete wasn't always a welcoming place. Many of the individuals living there had conduct and behavior that was very much needing to be changed. And yet, Paul commanded Titus in regard to the faith. Finally, Jude verse 3. I've just chosen a sampling of these passages and you no doubt could find so many others. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. Jude thus, as he wrote that little letter that bears his name, he admonished those brethren to contend earnestly for the faith. There's just a singular faith and yet Mr. Bronner has attempted to talk that there's three He just isn't right about that. In fact, as you and I appreciate the existence of the faith, I've simply placed on the slide, please note with me the singular character of those references. Aren't you thankful for the simplicity of the one faith and the obedience and the other features that relate and characteristically proceed with it? Notice also on this same slide, Mr. Bronner was very emphatic in asserting many baptisms, at least two. One more time, may we ask Paul's viewpoint on this? In Ephesians 4, verse 5, one faith, one baptism. Paul said there's but one. Shall we stand with Paul, or are we willing to accept the possibility of the others? Paul said one baptism, and this inspired gentleman as he asserted that reminds us so strongly that, of course, God is always right. As you contemplate these baptisms with me, one more time might we at least consider as you and I scan the pages of the New Testament and we appreciate that which is contained in it, we in fact find a number of references to baptisms. There's no question about that. But how many are appropriate and needful and vital for human salvation today? And the answer is one. Think with me about those baptisms as they occur. One of them in 1 Corinthians ten, verses one and following. Paul made reference to the baptism of the Israelites, in which they were baptized unto Moses, in the cloud and in the in 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 the cloud and in the water. Well, notice that baptism was appropriate and administered by Moses to the ancient children of Israel. It is not appropriate for you and me today. What about another one? There was that baptism known as the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Jesus referred to that in Matthew 3.11. And it's the very one we read of in Acts chapter 2 that came on the apostles and they were the only ones on that occasion who were blessed with the administration of it. There ain't a human being on earth today that receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was promised by Jesus to the apostles and only to them. We find in Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius and his household did begin to speak in tongues as they received the power and blessings, but they weren't inspired the same way those apostles were. And so another baptism is not for your salvation in mind today. What about the baptism of John the Baptist? Indeed, God commissioned him to baptize, and many, according to Matthew 3, verse 6, went out to Jordan and were baptized by him. Question, is that then a baptism to which you and I should submit today? Acts chapter 19 tells us quickly that when Paul found individuals who had been baptized by that, they quickly were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That baptism, you see, isn't predicated on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And therefore, one more baptism goes the way of ancient history. No one today should be baptized by the baptism of John the Baptist. And so that's three baptisms not appropriate today. Let's look at another one. What about the baptism of suffering? In Luke chapter 12, the apostles came to Jesus and they asked, Can we sit one on your right hand, one on your left in your kingdom? And the Lord said, You don't know what you're asking. He said, you will be baptized with the baptism of suffering indeed. They did suffer much for the cause of Christ, but is that the means whereby salvation is obtained today? Is it simply through suffering? The answer is no. That's a fourth baptism gone the way of history. May I say there's another one. What about the baptism of fire? Our Savior referred to that in Matthew 3.11. He spoke about the baptism of fire, and may we quickly say, none of us should want that one. That's the second death. Those cast into hell will receive the baptism of fire, but question, that's not appropriate today as the mechanism of salvation. That's five Bible baptisms, and none are appropriate for salvation in the here and now. What is? The very same one the Ethiopian eunuch did in Acts chapter 8. Here was one who said, here's water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Acts 8, verses 36 and 37. And so when Paul said there is one baptism in Ephesians 4, verse 5, it's the very thing to which you and I happily submit for the remission of sins. Isn't that what Peter proclaimed in Acts 2, 38? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. No wonder, then, Mr. Bronner's numbering, again, leaves a lot to be desired. There is but one baptism for the purpose of salvation in the present age. It's really a tragedy to consider that there shall be many receiving that baptism of fire on the day of judgment who, in fact, did not obey the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9. It may be, then, as we close that slide, aren't we in position to emphatically say in the words of Romans 4 verse 3, what saith the Scripture? Our interest is not the assertions of men, not the speculations of the human family. But in terms of the plan of salvation, what does the Bible say? It is with that, let's come to the next slide. And look at some additional features again that ask us to revisit that scheme that Mr. Bronner presented earlier. Repentance and its relationship to faith. You'll notice again that Mr. Bronner very carefully placed repentance before faith. Let's think about that more carefully. And as we do that, let's use a number of verses from the Word of God to remind and assist us in our consideration. First of all, what is the biblical definition of repentance? We understand that it's required now of any of us in order to be right with God. Did Jesus Himself say, "Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish"? Luke thirteen three, and repeated two verses later in Luke thirteen five. And so, repentance there can be no doubt that it's required. May I ask you to note again its definition? Repentance is not the same as godly sorrow. It's entirely possible to be sorrowful for something, but maybe to be sorrowful that I was caught or to be sorrowful that I've been found out. Repentance is much deeper and more profound. It's that particular matter in which a person changes behavior, changes action based on conviction that what was the case, what he was doing was incorrect. Change of action motivated by a change in heart. Change in behavior prompted by a change in consideration. In fact, you'll notice in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. You'll notice that even the Holy Spirit distinguished them. They're not one and the same. Perhaps you and I can consider the Lord's explanation in Matthew 21. Beginning in verse 28 of that chapter, when the Lord Himself gave an operational definition... He presented it with two boys. A father said to his two sons, go into my vineyard and work. And one of them said, I will, but did not go. So he didn't obey his father. But notice what happened to the other one. The other one said, I will not. And thus he immediately refused to obey his father. But then the text says he repented and went. And so as Jesus defined repentance, he highlighted it. The boy changed his heart, changed his mind relative to what the father had said, and he obeyed what his daddy had affirmed for him to do. Repentance is then a change of heart that manifests itself, shows itself, demonstrates itself in a change of behavior. You'll notice one more time, that doesn't seem to fit very well may i ask in light of mr Bronner's assertion he said that repentance comes before faith if a person doesn't have the conviction of heart to change why would you ever repent surely there would be no change of heart if there had been the appreciation of repentance before the ordering is of course nonsensical Wouldn't you and I be quick to say, we are not going to follow through with a given activity if we're not convicted and convinced that that's the right thing to do. And yet in the order presented by Mr. Bronner, one is asked to change his heart and life prior to his faith that would lead him to understand the need to do so. Seems absurd. No wonder as you come on that slide, the whole reason why that scheme has that order is because it is imperative to keep baptism out of the necessity in salvation. In his mind and those others of that framework, it's important to have salvation at the time of faith, and I've got to have repentance before that, so I've got to slip repentance in before faith. Although it's completely absurd to try to do it. You'll notice one more thing. As you look at various passages in the New Testament, those that Mr. Bronner attempted to use, and perhaps others that you may have spoken with who feel like this, they might use verses like these. Mark chapter 1, verse number 14. Please notice the statement that's therein made. The opening chapter of the gospel according to Mark. We notice beginning in verse 14, the words read like this. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. That's almost always one of the first verses to which attention is given as this discussion is presented. And many will say, Well, there it is. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So repentance comes before belief. Does it? Look at another one. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 1. We will remember on that occasion in a very interesting and very compelling discussion. As you look at the statement there, notice again what we're going to be asking. The ordering as it relates to this repentance, as well as the statement of belief. The text reads, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... Let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Well, again, many might be quick to say, Well, there it is. Repentance is listed in that order before faith. And again, Mr. Bronner attempted to use that with great forcefulness. What do those verses teach? And how does one appreciate the statement that's found in light of them? May I ask you to notice... The answer seems clearly to be that which is at the bottom. When the Bible presents matters, is it always presented chronologically in every way and in every occasion? And you and I know the answer obviously in many cases is no four other passages would contradict it if it were. Consider these at the bottom in Acts chapter 5 verse 30. We have statements there in May that ask us to reflect on this very point. Acts chapter 5, verse number 30. As Peter and John were themselves being questioned before the authorities in relation to their preaching, beginning in verse 29, Peter said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. May I ask you to notice there, slew, hanged on a tree, or joined by man. So did they kill Jesus before they put Him on the tree? We know they didn't. They nailed Him to the tree and He subsequently died. Well, notice those two weren't stated in chronological order. Continue on thereafter. Verse number 31. Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So are you then to take that in order? You notice that that seemingly directly contradicts Mr. Bronner's supposition. Notice on that occasion, repentance and forgiveness are joined, and you notice there repentance comes first. Mr. Bronner wants it to come after it. Which do you take? You and I know we have to take all of the Word of God together, and on those occasions, we appreciate by the Lord's definition, we can't have repentance preceding the matter that comes with faith. Notice yet another example in Acts twenty twenty one. Later in the same book of Acts, isn't it true? We find the following. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit into Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. As Paul spoke to those elders gathered from the city of Ephesus, he met with them at Miletus and shared with them some touching and heartwarming truths, but also some challenging things as well. And you'll notice carefully in verse 21 that he said, in reference to repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. One more time, Paul wasn't trying to give a chronological exposition. He was reminding these precious elders of what he had preached on that occasion when he was there in Ephesus in the previous chapter. And as he shared that with them, did it lead us to the last one, back to Hebrews 6 verse 1? There are so many matters in that listing that immediately calls pause to you and me. Did you notice again some of the details and the specifics of that ordering? Hebrews 6, verse number 1, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, immediately does one then suppose we're to leave the truth of the teaching of the Lord and proceed to these other matters. He quickly mentions, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. The doctrine of baptisms, and notice we talked about that earlier tonight. He mentions the laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Now, as the inspired writer makes those lists, are ones then to take all of those in a chronological order as if there's no reason that one of them couldn't precede another one? You'll notice that one gets into trouble if you always force chronology on what the Holy Spirit never intended to be chronological. Maybe it's in light of that. You notice as we close that slide, we've learned that this attempt to try to force this matter to keep baptism out of the plan of salvation takes it into a realm that's just unreasonable. If we accept what the New Testament says at face value, take what the Lord said and Peter and Paul and the others, at face value, one doesn't have any of this difficulty. It follows easily and straightforwardly case in point would be this next slide this plan of salvation with which you and I are so familiar asks us to notice just as Mr. Bronner asserted there is a necessity of hearing something one can't possibly obey what one doesn't know one can't possibly then give obeisance to something to someone of which one is not familiar there is the importance of hearing At that point, you'll begin to notice that that's the very matter that Paul highlighted to those brethren in Rome. In Romans 10, 13, "...for whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher?" And so as Paul presented the logical presentation, he said, to call on the name of God, you've got to believe but yet you can't believe unless you've heard. There's the necessity of hearing. Isn't that sweet then to reflect on how often our Master, Jesus Himself, would go from town to town preaching the beautiful message of truth? Paul was overwhelmed by that same motivation, wasn't he? No wonder as you follow hearing, you'll notice Paul dramatically told us the next thing has got to be Belief this requirement, this necessity, this importance of belief. Now notice, nowhere does the New Testament identify it as living or saving or active or historical. It's called faith. And it begins as one simply does what God tells him or her to do. Quite frankly, that's one of the best definitions operationally of faith that I've ever heard. You and I know that in terms of books and presentations and articles and scholarly presentations, sometimes there are very lofty definitions. Faith at the, hardest, at the heart of the matter is doing what God said to do for the reason that He said to do it. That's faith. Now needless to say, it comes with some wonderful promises and rewards. After all, isn't it true, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. But at the heart of the matter, it means I must do what God says for me to do, the way that He said to do it, for the reason that He said to do it. And that is the epitome of faith. No wonder then in Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. Faith is linked in such a way that it goes with its demonstration, its manifestation. And isn't that what James taught us? In James 2, beginning of verse 17, faith without works is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I'll show thee my faith by my works. No wonder, then, we appreciate as this proceeds, isn't it a sweet recollection when Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. The Lord, even after He was resurrected, He, pointing to that world lost in sin, said, People have got to believe. However, belief alone does not save. That faith has to manifest itself in the continued doing what God said to do. And you notice, repentance is the next matter that fits into it. We already highlighted tonight that Jesus Himself said that without it a man will be lost. That repentance, you and I see... In that very memorable set of events in Acts chapter two, there when these were gathered on Pentecost, and Peter and the others preached those great lessons that day about the fact that they'd put to death the Son of God, that with their own hands they had done it. But yet the bars of death weren't able to hold him, for the very power of God had raised him up, Acts 224, and he then reigned on the throne of David. And as such, Peter made demands on them in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. About 3,000 of them were convicted. They asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? And it's still grand that Peter didn't say, well, you've already exhibited faith. He said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. They still had their sins. Their conviction in heart hadn't forgiven them. The fact that they firmly believed that Jesus was the Son of God, that hadn't saved them. They were still in sin. That repentance, you see, we see amplified by the fact that confession is required. Jesus had affirmed that it would, of course, be that way. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, the Lord Himself had asserted, If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before the Father. But he that confesses me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. That confession you and I appreciate presented by way of demand in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, as Paul summarized it to that congregation. Did he say... For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So notice we confess with our mouth. It isn't just by way of our thoughts, by way of our action. We verbally have to affirm that we believe in Jesus. And we do so with all of our heart. That's still one of the grandest things that proceed from our mouth, isn't it? That person just before baptism says, I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is the son of God. You'll notice in 1 John 4:15 we too are commanded that if we don't confess that we are not of the fold of God maybe it's in light of that we now ask the question as we've thought about this matter of hearing and this issue of believing and the faith of course that's manifested in light of it and as we contemplate repentance and also confession Isn't it still a powerful thing to notice? None of them have ever been described as putting one into Christ. You don't believe into Christ. You don't repent into Christ. You don't confess into Christ. You don't hear into Christ. The only thing, the only activity, the only action ever spoken of in the New Testament that puts one into Christ... And may I ask you to note the preposition, into. A movement from out of to within. A movement from outside a limit or boundary to the interior confines. Into. Only baptism. Jesus had said, didn't he? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Since salvation is in Christ, Acts 4 verse 12 It follows that baptism is what is, that culminating act in faith that moves one from outside to inside into Christ. Is it any wonder in Galatians 3, 26 and 7, it says, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The one who was baptized into Christ has put on Christ, not before and not until. Additional verses you and I could quickly add would take us to the Roman letter. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? That's the very question and the very matter propounded in Romans 6 verses 3 and 4. Surely we then can conclude that with 1 Peter 3.21. The like figure whereinto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism is such a lovely act to witness. To see the exhibition of faith in the life of this individual, young or old, who has compellingly, lovingly, earnestly recognized the need to be baptized and is thus baptized into Christ. As you and I close that slide... We appreciate then that that activity puts one into Christ and that person can then proceed to live within the faithful confines of faithful living, living faithfully till death. We realize that the New Testament is filled with promises of eternal reward for the person who faithfully initially obeys the gospel and then lives faithfully till death. The book of Revelation gives us so many pictures and examples of the sweet reward that awaits the faithful. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May you and I be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of God. It is tonight, as we have looked at these particular attributes and features. Let's conclude our lesson with this particular slide. It's been our desire to reconsider the plan of salvation in light of some of the statements made in that discussion back in the month of May. We have found a number of problematic matters that Mr. Bronner asserted. There's not many faiths and there's not many baptisms for the purpose of salvation today. There's but one of each one of them. And aren't we so delighted to think of the simplicity that's in Christ? Aren't you reminded of 2 Corinthians eleven three? Paul was concerned that there would be individuals that would move them from the simplicity that's in Christ. That's still a danger. Oh, how we need to remember there is but one faith. There is but one baptism today. And as you notice on that slide, the oneness of each one of them, we, you and I have studied in appreciation of the gospel plan of salvation. It may be that there's someone in the audience who's never attended to it in the sense that you've obeyed it. It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to have appreciation and it's not enough to intend to do it. Do it. Heaven doesn't await for those who've made intentions. Heaven doesn't await for those who intended to do it. I wonder how many individuals have passed from this life. They intended to obey the gospel. They often no doubt intended to do it, and maybe they told many of their friends, I'm going to one day. That won't be good enough. Jesus didn't die because of good intentions. He died for those who lovingly obey what He said. I realize I speak before many who have already done that, and may we each live faithfully till death. But by the same token, if you have strayed from faithfulness, and at one time you were an ardent and zealous worker for the Lord, but you've since since begun to have questions, and maybe you've allowed your faith to be depressed as others have challenged you in ways, may I say, don't let false teaching cloud your thinking. Don't let the assertions of man lead you into very, very poor places in faithfulness. Tonight, if we could pray to God for strength, for your forgiveness, we'd be happy to do that this hymn of encouragement has been chosen. Now is a convenient and an appropriate time and if there would be one or more that would wish to come why not do so even now while together we stand and while we sing.